0: Is everything
1: okay? You're a lot louder when you're actually recording. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, so it doesn't matter, yeah. (laughs) It's like it's like we spend all this time like adjusting (laughs) all the levels and making sure everything's okay and then I'm listening to everything on headphones obviously because like that. But then when you come on to, to talk, not only do you not talk at the level that we tested at, but you also like scoff and cough and and then all this sort of stuff I didn't do that just just then you 100% did and I'm keeping it in the podcast so people can understand the amount of fury that I have to go through
0: hello there Welcome to On The Beat, the podcast that uncovers full frontal male nudity in cinema. My name is Laura, and I am joined by my co-host, Ryan. Hello. So today we are here to talk about the 1985 neo-noir action thriller, To Live and Die in LA. This one was directed by William Friedkin, and I know that Ryan here has a lot to say about William Friedkin.
1: I love a Friedkin. Freakin' I, freakin'. I am so excited about this episode. <laughs> Certainly in the interest of this podcast, there is not going to be a lot of opportunities where I get to talk about one of my favourite films probably on this podcast. At no point do I feel like Jack Lemon gets his dick out in the apartment, so I don't think we'll even be talking about that at any point.
0: I wish. Yeah. Because that'd be a nice little Christmas movie we could do with a little yeah. Christmas dick in it.
1: Or like if a ball pops out and Toshiro in Toshiro Mifuni in Yujimbo or something like that, where you're just like, ooh, hold on.
0: That would be... Odd. Phenomenal. Oh.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, yeah, certainly, yeah, I'm very happy that that we're able to do this, because I don't feel like this will happen very often.
0: We've had that Wang Chung soundtrack on repeat for a week.
1: Pretty much. I can hardly wait.
0: (laughs) Should get you to sing it. I mean, I could. I want you to maybe... Can you tell me a couple of Friedkin's greatest hits?
1: <laughs> Can I? <laughs> um, so William Friedkin. Let's just—I mean, let's just give him a rundown of like who he is. But, yeah. Um, William Friedkin. He was an award-winning documentarian back in the '60s. He moves into feature filmmaking. Uh, first of all, being *The French Connection* in '71, which everyone remembers, with Gene Hackman and Roy Scheider one massive at the oscars with uh, best director best film and oh wow uh, i
0: didn't actually know that
1: yeah it's one of yeah it's a massive hit huge absolutely huh. huge and also to this day it's a classic piece of american cinema kind of bridges bridges the gap between uh more cinema verity narrative filmmaking and also very much influenced by films of the nouvelle vague coming out of france at that time so it's very much a product of the American New Wave in the seventies. But anyway, Freakin's a very prominent figure all the way through the seventies with releases like The Exorcist, which is obviously, you know, obviously everyone everyone knows what The Exorcist is, but potentially the greatest horror movie of all time.
0: That's one that's on our Halloween movie list every single year.
1: Yeah, it is terrifying. Happy Absolutely terrifying. to watch
0: that. That's yeah. like almost one of those ones that I'll i I'd be happy to watch anytime.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, I love that that, one. that film is phenomenal. Um, so, Exorcist comes out in '73 and is a huge hit, absolutely massive hit. Yeah. Uh, obviously, this is before Jaws and Star Wars hit the scene. So, certainly the market is still still rife with more artistic kind of forms of media within the within the Hollywood system.
0: So, do you think that Freakin is responsible for our treasure of a Roy Scheider?
1: Roy Scheider is an unknown by the time he's in French Connection. So. Yeah, but certainly Roy Scheider goes on to prominence in the seventies. Obviously, with Jaws, another film called All That Jazz that he's in.
0: Oh, I watched that. Yeah, I watched it really recently. Yeah. And, oh, he's uh, so lovely in them in that one.
1: Yeah, and Roy Scheider uh, returns with freaking uh, in Sorcerer from seventy seven, mm. um, which is it's a phenomenal surreal. Masterpiece, Sorcerer.
0: Absolutely, I love that movie Um, too.
1: Masterpiece. I think that film is phenomenal. Unfortunately, though, in 77, we've already had Jaws, we've already had Star Wars, and they've totally changed the landscape of the filmmaking public, so to speak. Yeah,
0: so Sorcerer wasn't a box office smash.
1: Total flop. Yeah. It was very much indicative of the more artistic... Uh, referential pieces of filmmaking that were being made, kind of prior to effectively the birth of the blockbuster. So, okay. the obviously Vietnam was still very much present in people's minds, and filmmakers were very uh, aware of the zeitgeist of the American public. So, basically, what they were making were films that were that were tapping into that so to speak. Okay. Okay. But that's not to say that films like Jaws and Star Wars were not, were not great. Jaws is probably up there with, I mean, I'd say Jaws is probably better than Citizen Kane.
0: (laughs) I mean, I'm fine with that. If you ask me if I would want to watch Jaws or Citizen Kane, you can guarantee my answer is going to be Jaws.
1: Yeah. I mean, Jaws, Jaws is just a fantastic movie. Um, But certainly, yeah, and obviously, Star Wars. We all know about Star Wars. Did you
0: Did you know that I used to work at the Jaws ride? Uh,
1: yes. I I might have mentioned that. You might have mentioned it a time or two. It's part of the reason why me and Laura are even together is our love of Jaws. That's Uh, true. That's why we have a dog called Bruce. That's
0: yeah. That's absolutely. That was our first date conversation. Yeah. Aw.
1: Yeah, I know. How long ago was that? Look at us now.
0: Not that long.
1: No. No, it's not that long at all. It's like <laughs> literally a couple of years. Um, I barely know you. Yeah. I'm, I'm a stranger. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so after after Sorcerer, um, he makes a movie called The Brink's Job. Never seen it. From, yeah, in 78. Um, it's a massive flop. Um, and then after Uh-oh, that. that's two in a row. Yeah, he's made two flops in a row. Then Cruising comes out in 1980. Which is on
0: our list to watch.
1: Yes, we have Cruising on the list, which is the Al Pacino movie. Um, So certainly after Cruising, he suffers a massive heart attack in 81. Okay. And then in 83, he releases a movie called Deal of the Century. This film barely made back its own budget, pretty much. Um, But it film stars Sigourney Weaver and Chevy Chase.
0: What? It's
1: also a movie I've not seen. Either
0: I even feel like I've looked up a list of Friedkin movies and, you know, just trying to be a completionist. And I love Sigourney Weaver.
1: Yeah. My main thing about the career of William Friedkin is you have these pieces of 24-karat gold, (laughs) but sometimes you find them in effectively a pile of crap.
0: Oh, my God.
1: Because he has made... He has made some bad films because basically To Live and Die in L.A. comes out in 85. And certainly I can list a few films that he's made They can be hit and miss pretty much. But when he hits it, he hits out the fucking park. Right. Um, He's not getting films. And I think a lot of it's based on his unorthodox like working practices. A lot of people find him very difficult to trust. He's volatile. And certainly he's made a few powerful enemies within the industry over this time. Oh, wow, okay. Basically, he just can't be trusted.
0: What has he done?
1: On the set of The Exorcist. Right. He used to carry a loaded gun.
0: For the purposes of...
1: So let's put it this way. There's a shot in The Exorcist (laughs) when Jason Miller is listening to the tapes of The Exorcism. And he can hear the voices and stuff in the tapes. And in order to get the shot where he turns around really sharply because the phone rings, Friedkin literally just sets off a gun in order to get his natural reaction. Wow. Yeah. So the other thing, <laughs> and this is something which I read in Peter Biskin's book, uh, Easy Riders Raging Bulls, mm-hmm. um, is that he nearly broke Ellen Bernstein's back during the filming of The Exorcist.
0: Oh, that poor woman.
1: There's a point in The Exorcist where Mama Reagan's mum, <laughs> right? Reagan's mum. And Reagan throws her off the bed. There's a shot that's the reverse of her slamming into the floor. So basically she's on a she's on a pulley system and the stunt guy's there and he's physically pulling her off the bed to get this natural thing, where she's falling onto a hardwood floor. Okay. Now, for whatever reason, Ellen turns to freakin' and is just like, look. <laughs> He's pulling me very hard. Like, you're going to hurt me.
0: So naturally, you would think that a director would say, all right, I don't want to kill my actress. Well,
1: initially to Ellen, he does. He says, he says okay, I'll tell him to calm it down a bit. And then Friedkin looks over to... This is all from Ellen Bernstein's uh, uh, perspective. Wow. But he turns to the stunt guy and just goes, just fucking give it to her. And he does. And inadvertently, she falls so hard onto her back that she, she, uh, she nearly breaks it. And she's screaming in agony. She's going for her back. And Friedkin, during the course of all this chaos, basically says to the camera guy, yeah, yeah, go in for it, pull in for a close-up. Oh, at, which, at, wow. which, at which point, Ellen turns the camera guy and basically says to him, turn the fucking camera off.
0: Call an ambulance.
1: Yeah. But put it this way, <laughs> those two things I just listed to you, they're both shots that are in the film.
0: Hopefully it's worth it.
1: Whether or not you agree with his practices, he got exactly what he wanted.
0: Sounds a little psychopathic.
1: Yeah, yeah, it is psychopathic. But the thing is, uh, from listening to interviews and watching him, and I mean, I love him. absolutely love him.
0: He's very charismatic. He's
1: very charismatic. He's very knowledgeable. He's very knowledgeable about not just film, but art. He has ideas and he has things that he does, which I feel like... Yeah, I feel like he has no, he has no, uh, f- like, sense of forgiveness.
0: You know what? I wonder if the character of Richard Chance, played by William Peterson in To Live and Die in L.A., has any sort of mirror or correlations to William Freakin' himself. He's a maverick. He does whatever he needs to do to get the job done, whether it's right or wrong, whether it's legal or illegal, and... You know, basically says, I do what I want.
1: Yeah, yeah. I would say 100% there's probably some sort of relatability there. (laughs) So really, after all of this series of flops and certainly, you know, he's having trouble getting films off the ground, Mm -hmm. Um, he's looking to as this to be his comeback. So To Live and Die in LA is meant to be his comeback, or at least his interest in the story. So it's a book that's been adapted. Uh, it was called Money Men uh, by Gerald Petjevich He also pens the script with Gerald. Um, and basically it's about Gerald's experiences as uh, a member of the Secret Service.
0: Okay, all much. right.
1: It's a tiny film, tiny budget, $6 million. Uh, and what, what seems to come of it is this comparably very smooth production... And most of the film is ninety percent first takes that are printed. So pretty much, we know freaking he used to he used to just shoot his rehearsals as well. So he would just like run the camera. If he got what he wanted, he'd sometimes just turn around even after the first take and just be like, you yeah, know, we got it all. That's fine."
0: It's funny. I've I've heard him say in interviews because he'll have, you know, questions and answers from audience members or whoever's moderating the. The interview. Yeah. And they'll say, well, tell me about your rehearsal process. And he goes, (laughs) I don't rehearse. Yeah. You know? And I'm like, wow, okay. He seems like the kind of guy that just wants the actors to feel it, do it. He doesn't want to bother with it.
1: Pretty much. He's like,
0: I'll do my job, you do your job.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Life is of the moment. You know, that moment passes. It happens, it passes, people move on.
0: It works here. It works here flawlessly.
1: So really... What I see with To Live and Die in LA, and this is not a bad thing, this is very much to the film's benefit, this film oozes style. Absolutely oozes it. And the Wang Chung soundtrack just just builds on such a foundation. Like, the film is not the same without it.
0: No, that soundtrack is a banger. It's
1: a pulse-pounding, energetic uh, theatrical soundtrack that I, I, yeah, it's rarely bested. Freaking before he'd finished writing the script, contacted uh, Wang Chung, who are a British duo, and he'd listen to their song, Wait. And effectively, what you get uh, for the for the soundtrack of uh, To Live and Die in LA is basically just a deconstructed version of that song that's elongated.
0: And this movie has another titular song. Oh,
1: some fucking absolute stonker.
0: Yeah, there's the titular song to this film, To Live in Diane L.A., despite Freakin's Friedkin, request to not have the words to live in Diane L.A. in any of the songs.
1: Yeah. And, he, and it's
0: so good. Yeah,
1: he loved it. He loved it that he put it in the beginning of the movie. And it's, it, runs, like it runs in certain points in the movie as well, like two or three different times. So. You can
0: see that from the very beginning. I mean, just as soon as the movie starts, it's got style, it's got flair, it's got color, it's got flash, it's got... Yeah. I know it's got everything I want. Yeah, it everything is. I didn't know I needed.
1: The eighties is probably my favorite film decade. It's the same decade you have ET's. The same decade you have Back to the Future.
0: But this is the you same know? year as Back to the Future.
1: Yeah, same year as Back to the Future. The Goonies. Yeah.
0: Commando. Yep. Witness. Wow. You, you love Witness. I
1: fucking love Witness. If there's any, yeah, I mean, if there's anything that that I do <laughs> love, it's a good cop thriller.
0: It's a very <laughs> slow moving. <laughs>
1: Procedural. I love police procedurals. To the point where I wrote one. You did. For the BBC for uh, four years. Fucking crime thrillers are my bag, baby. (laughs) You know what I mean? Mm. The same year you have E.T., you've got The Thing. John Carpenter's The Thing. And it's like... Or Blade Runner. Fucking Blade Runner. Blade Runner.
0: Blade Runner.
1: Fucking... Blade Runner.
0: All right, you do that on Rye Dogs Top Hits podcast that you it's need my, to make yourself. It's my favorite film. There's of no all dick time. in Blade no, Runner.
1: No, there isn't.
0: So we're not going to talk about it.
1: That film would be better if Rutger Hauer got his dick out. To be fair, you know, just running around.
0: I mean, anything would be better. Just pop Rutger Hauer's dick in it. Yeah.
1: So living fast, dying hard in L.A. So
0: Woo-hoo! here we are. To summarize, to live and die in L.A. Okay, so to. Put it all together in a nice little, let's say, clothes dryer full of poker chips.
1: See what you did there. (laughs) Thank you. Okay.
0: The letterboxed synopsis of this film is one sentence and one sentence only. It is, a fearless Secret Service agent will stop at nothing to bring down the counterfeiter who killed his partner. You know what? That's not bad.
1: I still want to give
0: my own synopsis, but that's not bad.
1: That's on the point. What's the tagline, though?
0: A federal agent is dead, a killer is loose, and the city of angels is about to explode.
1: That's kind of like the tagline to Akira.
0: What's the tagline to Akira?
1: Neo-Tokyo is about to explode. Except explode is in like a, an, an abbreviation, so it's meant to like maybe mean something else. So it's like e. X. P. L. O. e. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, kind of... I don't know what that means. But... Uh, Yeah, every time I hear that, I just think, oh, it's Akira. But Akira came out in 88.
0: So I want to wrap it up in my own words. We have Richard Chance, played by William Peterson, who is, I know, beautiful.
1: I love William Peterson.
0: So he is...
1: It's William L. Peterson. In this film, yeah, yeah. yeah. This is his first ever main film role.
0: Part, smaller part, in Michael Mann's thief in 1981 that was the only other film he had been in yeah prior to this film
1: what a treat he shows up and stuff like that james can they start arguing for like 20 seconds while he's in the bar
0: i love that That
1: was wild every
0: time i see a little peterson pop up i just my my eyes turn into little stars and a smile just covers my face
1: he is a phenomenal character actor absolutely phenomenal he really
0: is it's yeah. not gonna make me watch csi though
1: he plays richard in to live and die in la yes and off the back of to live and die in la he's will graham in michael Mann's manhunter honestly like Oof. there's not a lot of people i'd probably get starstruck by because i remember meeting sean connery once opened the door for him and he was a goliath of a man yeah Absolute goliath but lovely lovely dude all the same may he rest in peace but certainly yeah. if I was to if I was to meet William Peterson, I don't know, I might get a bit wobbly.
0: <laughs> He's like, catch me, Billy. I'm, like, I'm feeling faint. <laughs>
1: I'm like, Billy, can I have a hug, Billy?
0: <laughs> Give me just a little tender kiss. And to
1: be honest, he probably doesn't like being called Billy, so I'm gonna call him William.
0: Oh, sorry. Yeah. William Friedkin gave William Peterson the job almost immediately after seeing him in uh, he was in a streetcar named Desire production in Toronto.
1: Yeah, well, he was, uh, he had his own uh, Chicago, uh, own theater group in Chicago. Yeah,
0: That's and then he ended Peterson. up doing that, that play in Toronto. Yeah. And Friedkin went up to Toronto to see him in this play. I think he has Peterson read, you know, half of the page of dialogue or something and was like, you're hired.
1: Immediately cast him.
0: You're wonderful. cast him. Yeah. Per the instructions of, I think, the casting director, Bob Weiner, right? That was the casting director?
1: Yeah, Bob Wiener also cast uh, The French Connection as yeah. well. So. Lots
0: of trust there. Yes. He knows what he's doing. He knows those maybe kind of off-the-beaten-path type of actors, ones that aren't, like, gigantic yet. He
1: was looking for, for, for actors, not faces, for this movie.
0: Yeah. You know? Well, actors, not faces. What do you mean? Like, actors, not celebrities?
1: Pretty much like if like a known face. You didn't want to have a known right. face in the picture. Because so. I know he was
0: looking for faces. Because I know when he said he hired John Turturro, he's like, he's got an interesting face. Yes. You're hired. Yes. But not by, wrong.
1: By the time they're cast in this movie, a l- pretty much a lot of the people in this movie are, are maybe with the, the exception of Dean Stockwell, but... Um, a lot of the people in this movie have only done maybe one, maybe two roles. Yeah, they're very not, small. They're not main roles.
0: So. Yeah, they're just kind of starting their, their film careers and stuff.
1: Pretty much, yeah. Pretty much. Everyone, everyone in this fucking movie is so good. Oh. Everyone's so good. But in casting William Peterson, uh, they also cast John Pankow.
0: Yeah, they had worked together. I think, didn't Peterson give that recommendation?
1: He knew him. He
0: knew him. They'd worked together and absolutely hired.
1: So John Pankow plays uh, Richard Chance's partner after his present partner is murdered. Yep, John Uh, Pankow is Vukovic. Vukovic. Vukovic in this film. The names are so good in this movie. Yeah. Willem Dafoe. Willem Dafoe's in this movie. That's another
0: Bob Wiener special. Yeah. Yeah, I think he had been doing some kind of avant-garde stage shows.
1: Experimental theater.
0: We might have seen a, a few videos of that.
1: Yes, we have. Um, yes. Unfortunately, had... unfortunately, we have seen some videos <laughs> of him doing some, some uh, experimental theater.
0: <laughs> I mean, look it up, guys, if you want to. You don't have to. You anyway, I think he had been in... Willem Dafoe had been in about six films before this. I know some of the hits were his second film. He was the star of the film The Loveless in 1982. That
1: Catherine Bigelow movie.
0: That Catherine Bigelow movie. Yeah. Yeah, and that was, his. I think, his first starring role. Okay. And then just before, in 1984, a film that I absolutely adore called Streets of Fire.
1: (sighs) Walter Hale's Streets of Fire.
0: Did you know he directed Red Heat?
1: Yeah. Of course you did. Yeah, of course I did. Because <laughs> I'm about to talk. I was going to talk about 48 eight hours as well. So.
0: Oh, okay.
1: <laughs> Deborah Deborah Fuer who plays Bianca Torres. Obviously that's Rick's. That's Rick's other half.
0: Oh yeah, I don't think we said Rick Masters. That's Willem Dafoe's. That's right. Really, yeah, Willem Dafoe's name is name. Rick. Ma-
1: yeah, Rick Masters. Oof.
0: Yeah, so Deborah Fuer is Bianca, who is his main gal.
1: Yeah. They have like a lover. Yeah, they have like a dancing troupe and stuff in that movie as mm-hmm. well. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot. There's a lot of stuff going on in this movie that's 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 very interesting. Uh, John Tutoro, who plays Carl Cody, who is uh, Rick's mule, mm-hmm. pretty much. Um, and also, we have uh, much smaller roles in the form of Dean Stockwell, but he'd also been in movies and known for Blood Simple, Coen Brothers' first film. Uh, back in 84, but the same year he's in uh, Paris, Texas, the Vin Wenders movie um, with uh, Harry Dean Stanton, which is also shot by the same person who shoots To Live and Die in LA, Robbie Mueller.
0: I think that, that makes sense because they talked about the correlation, or not the correlations, but, you know, how much Friedkin had liked Paris, Texas, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, Paris, Texas is a modern masterpiece.
0: Yeah, because that's why he cast, he wanted to cast Dean, Stockwell, yeah. right? was yeah, from Parasectus. Okay.
1: Yeah. Ruth yeah. Lanier, uh, Darlan oh. Flugel, who uh is
0: probably
1: one of the most important roles in the film, in my opinion. Personally. I loved her
0: in this in this film and I really loved her hair and her yes. clothes.
1: Yeah, she's got a real I'm gonna she's put a real picture good of her look for look my her.
0: for my hairdresser. Yeah.
1: No, she's got <laughs> she's got a real good look about her in this movie. Whoa, um,
0: Pump the brakes, Henderson.
1: Hey, look, I think she I think she looks I think she looks <laughs> I think she looks great cuz I think she 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 embodies that character. There's a toughness about her, but at the same time there's a fragility, you know. She's yeah. quite, you yeah. know, she's quite, she's almost like she's made of glass, like she's just ready to break. And she's just kind of stuck in this fairly volatile, violent world and she can't seem to get out.
0: No, no, it's quite tragic.
1: That's the pervading kind of theme that runs through the movie as well. I cannot, I cannot not go through all of these names. Okay, tell us the names. Richard Chance, John Vukovic, Rick Masters, Bianca Torres, Carl Cody, Bob Grimes, Ruth Lanier fantastic set of names
0: that's a really great set of names such a
1: good set of names
0: William Peterson plays a secret service agent but he's kind of a maverick secret service agent does whatever it takes to get the job done right Um, and he is basically out for vengeance for the murder of his longtime partner who was just about to retire it's Rick Masters, played by Willem Dafoe, the fact that he is the guy that they have been chasing. Rick Masters is a master counterfeiter, and that's what the Secret Service agent investigates. Like, that's what their agency does. They go after counterfeiters. So it is his most, it's his most important case. He needs to find Rick Masters and bring him to justice, not only for counterfeiting, but mostly because he murdered his partner. And, yeah, it's, it's all he's out for vengeance. Yeah.
1: I mean, he is a member of the Secret Service. This is the Treasury Department we're looking at. So primarily their work focuses on money counterfeiting. But well, as the film opens, you can tell that potentially L.A. is at a boiling point at this moment. You know, it's a lot of money changing hands, a lot of money being circulated, money's being made hand over fist. And obviously being uh, being reproduced, so certainly the the landscape we are introduced to is of a of a city in turmoil, just full of counterfeit money that's just like passing hands uh, all over the place. So William Pearson has to go in there and clean this shit up.
0: Yeah, he does. Yeah, no matter what it takes, mm-hmm. by any means necessary.
1: Yeah. So, because yeah, certainly like as a synopsis, that's that's basically what the film is. That's what it it's is. It's pretty straightforward. Yeah. It has this very clean and easy through line that gets you from the beginning of the movie to the very end. Now, where a lot of the depth comes in is within all the little character interactions and how how they all play a big part in this in this much bigger scope. So right. What they've written is a kind of reworking of the what will become popular uh, Buddy cop formula. So you have Walter Hill's Forty-eight hours, um, and then I would say it kind of comes to more of a height um, with Richard Donner's *Lethal Weapon* movie in '87.
0: Uh, right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So it's the lengths to which the cops are going to go to to catch Masters, pretty much. Right. And I've I've said here it's like basically they have to they have to be worse sometimes than the people they are actually catching in order to get to get what they want. Now, obviously, there's a lot of carnage that ensues in this movie. How you know you listen to a plot like that, you listen to a, you know a synopsis like that. It can yes. feel incredibly standardised. So I guess kind of like what you see in that opal t- opening title sequence is what you probably see in like a police procedural that you would see on TV. Like yeah, your
0: opening kind of introductions without being obviously introduced to some of the characters and yeah. how money is passed from you know, the counterfeit money is passed through the community.
1: Yeah, pretty much like setting, setting what's happening within the city and with the, within the criminal, the criminal network at that time. Right. Um, but what it also does uh, is it seems to highlight certain parts of, like, kind of the L.A. art scene. So there's the art of Rainer Fetting, which is what what, is, what we see is Rick Masters' artwork. So yes. Rick Masters' is front so to speak, is he makes... He, he, he's a painter, so...
0: You think you'd call it a front? I thought it was his passion.
1: But his... The artwork that he produces is the art of Ryder Fetting, who plays a little character in the movie as well. He plays the priest during oh, the stakeout. Right. He brings them milk and cookies and stuff when they're staking out in the church when they're watching Waxman's office.
0: He's making art for yeah. Willem Dafoe to burn Pretty and much. also bringing cops and cookies.
1: He said, he's, I think mean, in the commentary <laughs> like, yeah, he quickly painted this thing up because he knew exactly what we were going to do with it and then they burned it.
0: Um,
1: <laughs> there's also another character in the movie uh, who appears in a wheelchair and he's the actual artist, Mark Gash. Um, and his artwork is featured uh, prominently in this one. <laughs> This one scene. There's also all the dance sequences as well, uh, by Leslie Linka gladder as well. There's all that uh, performative art stuff. I guess I guess you would say like Kabuki esque.
0: When I saw that that scene, it reminded me like the dance sequence that you're talking about. It mm. reminded me. Do you remember in Spaced, uh, Edgar Wright show? I was yes. Trying to remember. Yeah. Yeah. So in that show, they go to a dance uh, performance. And one of the guys in the performance says, abstract expressionism is so mid to late 80s. And I never really knew exactly what that was until now. Yeah, it was like, David. Uh, David Walliams. David Walliams, yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Oh, so good.
0: Oh. but Finished. That ha- oh my gosh. That that episode's very good. But yeah, abstract expressionism. Not finished. And this is exactly mid 80s, so. Yeah. I this think is, it's I'm yeah, learning. these
1: beautiful little artistic flourishes in a film that could be relatively quite quite standardized, I guess. You know, lots of pops of colour, lots of things to look at, a lot of very interesting things. You've got a stonking soundtrack. Yeah. And I guess like overall, you just look at how the film looks. And the film looks beautiful. Yes. Absolutely gorgeous film. And it's shot by Robbie Mueller, who primarily was Vin Vander's director of photography who shot Paris, Texas, and he shot Repo Man for Alex Cox. It's, yeah, it's just a lot of... You see his use of very strong primary colours, a lot of magic hour photography as well, so, you know, the sun's on the horizon. That That is something I think adds a lot to the film, It's just the way it looks. Like, it really does a very good job at depicting the LA landscape. And just, like, the searing heat that you would reflect to say like uh, the, the city of Los Angeles as well. I think the only other person of note, and this is very small, but uh Robbie Mueller was not used to shooting uh chase sequences. And there's a there is a chase sequence in this. Oh my movie. goodness.
0: One of the best car chase scenes of all time.
1: It has to be seen to be believed. Um and he didn't feel very comfortable shooting that, that sequence, so Robert, Bob Yeoman, uh shot the chase sequence. Okay. He's the second unit photographer on this movie.
0: I think I was saying to you that this movie felt like it had kind of two different openings. You have the opening sequence where you get to meet Chance and Jimmy Hart yeah. when they're working in that hotel.
1: What the Secret Service primarily does, and that's protect the the President of the United States. That's Reagan. Would, Reagan. Who would, yeah, it would have been Reagan at this point. There's a giant picture of Reagan in their office as yeah, well. Yeah, of course. Um, <laughs> that's just <laughs> so funny. Um, but yeah, I think Friedkin said in the commentary when we were watching it, he'd forgotten to shoot this entire sequence when they got into the cutting room.
0: I think that's why it feels so. It doesn't feel off, like it, you know, because you're just kind of getting settled into the movie. Yeah. But it it does when you go further in, you're like, okay, I can maybe see why this.
1: But yeah, you always kind of feel like. This, this opening little segment, this sequence, I guess, uh, to the film is potentially tacked on. But, I mean, that's because it is. Yeah. You know? Um, his primary concern was that he was, with his, this, this film in general, was that he was looking at the surreal life of a Secret Service agent.
0: Yeah. And
1: he just wanted to show them, show the audience what this life primarily was. Cops dream of joining the Secret Service. Like that is seen as a, uh, that's like, that's like a final destination. Are you sure? For your career in the, the law enforcement. S-
0: have you seen Guarding Tess? Because <laughs> that seems pretty bad. Well. You've seen that movie, that Nicolas Cage movie. Oh
1: God, yes. Yeah. It's terrible.
0: That's Secret Service.
1: Terrible film. I know. Billet is a comedy, and it's like, there's nothing funny about it. No. And it's not that it's not funny, it's that it's not actually a comedy. There's nothing think about it. I I
0: would ever want to be in the Secret Service. Doing stuff like this is interesting, where you're actually getting to catch perps, and you're investigating. But when you have to watch an old lady, and that's your job day mm. in and day out, forget it.
1: Now, whether or not you agree with the work, you can't argue with the $150,000 a year pay packet that you would get.
0: Yeah, it's a nice six figure.
1: Got fucking in your pocket. Yeah, they got Chance at Beach House, didn't it?
0: That's a nice house. That's
1: a fucking lovely house.
0: He can get as much Miller High Life as he could possibly desire. Yeah,
1: this fucking movie must be must be sponsored by Miller or something, because every time they drink it's it's Miller. It's the same bottles of Miller every well, time.
0: Ryan, it's the champagne of beers. Okay. It's true.
1: I'm a PPR man. <laughs>
0: Heineken, Pabst, Blue, Ribbon. (laughs) It's still strange to me because I didn't really... When I think of the Secret Service, I think about them on call to protect presidents, ex-presidents, their families, and stuff like that. I never thought of them or their origins. I guess I never really (laughs) cared (laughs) Mm -hmm. what they did um, was that they originally created that, that sect of the government was to go after counterfeiters in like the civil war
1: combat counterfeiters basically that is their there was their primary function
0: because i thought about it with the first time i saw that movie with you or when mm-hmm. i saw this movie i'm like why is it their job to go after counterfeiters
1: yes because
0: yes. in the movie there's a couple of times where they have run-ins with actual police and they're like oh we're secret service yeah you know and it's it's very strange. Mm-hmm. There's that beautiful long section where we really get to see Willem Dafoe doing his his work counterfeiting money. And I thought it was super interesting that William Friedkin had hired a guy, I don't know if I don't they didn't get him out of prison. I think he was out of prison, but he had gone to jail for counterfeiting money. So they had a guy who actually knew how to do it, who went to prison for it. And I think he said that he was working in like a print shop or like he owned a a print shop now.
1: Yeah, he had his own printmakers.
0: Yeah. And they hired him on to make this money. And so they have that really long, beautiful scene of Willem Dafoe bit by bit and artistically making this counterfeit money. So you can see how intricate that work is. And I think it's such a really cool scene
1: yeah you wouldn't you wouldn't think it uh, probably on paper being huh. this uh this uh this such an interesting interesting kind of set of shots and sequences and stuff like that but yeah basically it's just the arduous process of printing counterfeit money in all the different ways in which they do it i mean i think the f i think it just the, the scene itself just looks really really cool and there's that one shot of like the red paint on the money plate where it's just like rubbing back and forth. And this is all in time to the Wang Chong music as well. So the Beautiful. energy, the energy of the score just elevates this scene as well. And then it just kind of, I mean, the scene itself is almost five to 10 minutes long, just on its own. Yeah. You know, um, but certainly, it's just, yeah, you just see masters who is the artist performing his true, his true art. Um, yeah. Certainly, yeah, there was a story that Friedkin brought up about uh, the prop master getting in trouble with the Treasury Department. Um,
0: yeah, because the prop master had taken home, I don't know if it was inadvertently, some of the 20s that they used, the counterfeit 20s, but they were only one-sided. Yeah. And he brought them home and there was like a stack of them on yeah. the table, I think, or a few of them. And his young son, I mean, had to have been pretty young.
1: His asshole son.
0: His asshole son. His idiot son. Oh, yeah. sorry, son. I don't know who you are. I'm sure you were embarrassed and your dad was horribly angry. But uh, the prop master's son went and took one of these one-sided 20s and took it to a shop and tried to, I don't know, buy candy or Twinkies or whatever kids like to eat.
1: Yeah, whatever.
0: And the the cashier at whatever store he was at ended up, I don't know if he called the cops or he called... I'm sure that, I mean, I've I mean, worked at a register before and I've never called the Treasury Department, so I assume they call the police.
1: Yeah, well, I'm assuming, I'm <laughs> assuming, I'm assuming that, uh, I think if you give a cashier like a passable dollar note, but it's only one-sided, 100% they are either going to call the police and the police will end up getting the Treasury Department involved.
0: I guess, I mean, maybe kids shouldn't get a pass for being stupid.
1: <laughs> no. <laughs> no. But yeah, I think uh, once the Treasury Department got involved, uh, they started hounding uh, Friedkin.
0: So even when the Treasury Department is hounding Friedkin about these counterfeit bills, Friedkin in an interview was saying how he had taken some of the the 20s, I guess, that had to have been double-sided and took them out to the bars and were buying drinks for people. And he was like, yeah, the bills always passed. They always pass as real bills. So he's getting hounded by the treasury going like, please don't use this fake money. He goes, what are you talking about? Of course not. And then he's out there just like raining down fake 20s at the bar, buying drinks for people.
1: It's wild. Animal. Yeah. I mean, he just doesn't give a fuck. That's it. You know, good for him. Good for him. Um, Certainly something I probably wouldn't have said in an interview. But anyway... um,
0: what's the statute of limitation statute of limitations on a uh, counterfeit money <laughs> I
1: don't know I don't know but like one of the first times we are were introduced to to chance again after the title is he's on top of a bridge
0: oh my gosh there's that really cool shot and that's what I was maybe trying to allude to when you're talking about the first time you see Chance Mm -hmm. versus when you see him standing on the bridge, like that shot of him on the bridge seemed like the perfect introduction to him as a character. Right. Cause that kind of seemed like what, how we were meant to see him originally, like standing on a bridge. He looks like he's going to jump off. Mm -hmm. I don't know. You know, we don't know why, like what's happening here. And then I don't know. There was like a, that camera movement up. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, so they use the new Luma crane technology on this this movie as well. Yeah, Yeah.
0: this crane, so it's kind of going up and over. So you see him standing on the edge of this bridge, and Mm -hmm. then he freaking jumps off, and then you realize that he's bungee jumping um yeah, like it's this like, one legged bungee jump off of this bridge.
1: Yeah, it's kinda like he's uh he's tied by like a stunt like a stunt worker's uh like pulley system or something like that. He's on a cable and he just he just kind of uh jumps off the bridge and obviously it saves his saves his fall. Um but yeah, I guess like what you see from the very opening, which is obviously the hotel uh the hotel duty. The hotel de- detail when they're looking after the president. Mm-hmm. That's not to say that like whatever he does is not risky because again he takes out in a uh, he takes out a Middle Eastern terrorist on the roof of the hotel. Yeah. Um,
0: well, no, I th- actually Jimmy Hart did.
1: He did, but he is pointing he pulled he him off kinda, he pulled the building. Him. For for some reason, this is weird. For some reason, he gets on the roof because obviously there's something something's gone wrong, and and Richard Chance is just like oh, uh, there's been a shake, and then he's he goes on the roof and the. The Middle Eastern terrorist is there. He pulls open his shirt. He's, like, covered in, in in dynamite. And then for some reason, I don't know how he's done it, but Jimmy Hart must have scaled the building. Yes. And he's in the kitchen in the basement. And he's scaled the building. And he's hanging off the edge of the building and gets behind the terrorist yes. to pull him off the roof. Right. And obviously, inadvertently, the man unclips the dynamite and he blows up on the side, off the side of the building.
0: I had forgotten it when we watch it again, because when that happened, he blows up within like a half second after much, falling yeah. off the building. And I'm like, oh, his partner's dead. Like that's how his partner dies. Yeah, that's And then what I'm like, yeah. oh wait, no, he's fine. He's well, totally fine. I mean, obviously fine. because, you know, they filmed this after. <laughs> they couldn't yeah, kill it him blows. then.
1: It blows, it blows up. We see like the landscape, it blows up. It's this kind of flash, very kind of stylized in its own way. And then the next shot we see is like Peterson sharing a cigarette with him and Jimmy Hart's just to the side of him. And he's like rubbing his shoulder. And he just basically says, predating what then becomes a catchphrase in Lethal Weapon, he says, I'm getting too old for this shit.
0: Oh, man. Yes, he does. Yeah. He does.
1: And it's phenomenal. But it's a weird, yeah, it's a weird thing. I think, yeah, you, you have two different openings to this. I feel like, obviously, that original shot of Pearson on the bridge was meant to be their introduction to
0: right. it. Right. Like, this maverick guy, this, I don't know, this wild...
1: He's a, he's a thrill-seeker. Yeah. Yeah, he's into thrill-seeking. And the thing, obviously, I mean, there's stuff that happens. Stuff that happens the car, where you're just like, this, this man is just on a on a road to self-destruction.
0: Yeah, he is. Yeah.
1: I mean almost all of the characters in the movie are on a road to self-destruction, pretty much. They're all in they're all in professions effectively that could find them killed at a moment's notice.
0: I had to think about it, but yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah, pretty much. Even from the smallest smallest role, see your Dean Stockwell who plays the lawyer to even Ruth Lanier as well, who's who's an informant, they're all kind of within the criminal framework, dealing with people who'll who'll knock them at a, at a at a second's notice.
0: But Ryan, wouldn't you say that we're all on a road to destruction?
1: I mean, every time I wake up in the morning, I am pretty much on the road to destruction. <laughs> so I mean, that's that's it. I mean, if. If anything I've learned from being in my mid-20s is that I' I'm, I'm a self-destructive individual. So
0: oh you're in your mid20s?
1: Not anymore. <laughs> 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 so yeah, good luck for the future. Um, <laughs> so there's definitely a dichotomy between the hero and the villain. You have masters who's an androgynous, sophisticated, articulate, artistic individual, you know? Yes. And then you have Chance, who's kind of contrasts in in such a way that it was grunty displays of masculinity, and you know you see certain shots where he's got his leg on the chair. He swaggers a lot.
0: Yeah, he does. He
1: just wobbles his hips like a like a like he is he is mincing around. The thing is, like you wouldn't say it to him because he'd punch you in the face.
0: He jumps. He squats. Mm -hmm. He runs. He wears a scarf. That scarf is sexy. He wears a scarf. He wears a scarf around like that f- kind of like football jersey yeah. that he wears.
1: Also, it's LA as well, so it's probably roasting.
0: Well, it's, he does
1: not give a fuck.
0: It's December.
1: But he wears that. He wears that <laughs> scarf. Like he wears that scarf like Navy's business.
0: He is the definition of toxic masculinity.
1: Yeah. But the thing is is like he's that's very important and that is very important to when we start talking about his dick scene as well. <laughs> that is incredibly important. Yes. He is set up this way very purposely and very deliberately.
0: Do you remember that really fun scene in the airport? So it's like yeah. the first time or you know where you really get to see Chance with his new partner Vukovic. Mm-hmm. at LAX and they yeah. had a lead on a mule so they're in there and they're trying to find this guy make sure he has counterfeit money and get him
1: yeah so this is uh this is Cody who's played by John Tutoro yeah the mule yeah um, that's the first
0: time we see him I think
1: this is the very first time yeah this is the very first time
0: yeah as soon as they know and they have proof that he's got counterfeit bills I mean it's yeah. over they are running through yes. the airport to try and catch cody
1: so yeah cody's cody's paid for his flight with some counterfeit money Vukovic enters just after him to check the money that he just gave they find out it's counterfeit
0: can i get a pencil
1: can i get a pencil and eraser and it's like yeah well you you pointed out yourself you're like why didn't he have his own if that's the way that was gonna do it if that's
0: how you check counterfeit money bring your own pencil
1: yeah god it was weird what a newbie i know it's like, come on, go to a stationary show. Rookie bitch. Fool. Um but yeah, certainly he's like doing this thing and then he just looks over at uh at chance and just like nods, just sets him off like a wild dog. He just starts running, runs all the oh, way yeah. through security.
0: If I saw that dude chasing after me in an airport, I'd be fucking terrified. Was so scary.
1: Yeah. He I mean this this little chase sequence, and it's the thing that the thing that I love just about how how freaking, like, captures this sort of stuff. It just feels very visceral, feels very fast.
0: Oh, yeah, feels it is. Very,
1: yeah, it just feels very organic. Oh, the um, people movers. The people movers, basically. So they're at the treadmills, and I think they've got a member's airport security or something on, the, on there just to kind of advise them and things. Yeah, I
0: think they had said, like, what they wanted to do, and initially... Peterson was saying that he wanted to run on the top kind of... Uh, the Ramparts.
1: Top, yeah, the ramparts. The ramparts basically. of yeah. the
0: people movers to get him kind of through the crowd faster so he wouldn't have to go through the crowd. He would kind of go over them, yeah, so to speak. And the security guy's like, um, I don't think my insurance covers that, so maybe mm-hmm. don't.
1: Yeah. Well, originally, I think Friedkin gets that from the security guy. Friedkin goes to Peterson being like, well, looks like we're not going to be able to do that. And he's like, oh. But he's like, well... Let's just say, if it were to happen accidentally, then it would be okay. And lo and behold, Peterson does it. Uh, he goes over the ramparts, and that's the take the use.
0: Yep, just yeah. one and done. One in the can. I mean, he knew he could do it. He isn't, you know, Peterson's an athlete. And, I mean, yeah. he's freaking car-coring yeah. through this entire film. So, I mean, he's jumping yeah. over stuff. He's like yeah. a little bird.
1: Peak of fitness. Again, just like these lovely little visceral like flourishes that just kind of characterize these bits. And one of my favorite bits of this entire sequence is he, he's, he's got Cody in the bathroom and he goes to arrest him.
0: I like gets to the bathroom, Mm -hmm. knocks the bathroom door through does that scene where he's against that, like, blue tile, and he, like, turns with his gun, and he's all sweaty, and he starts kicking in bathroom doors, he kicks yeah. in the door with that kicks dude in that first taking bathroom a dump.
1: Door. Yeah. guys, like, what are you doing, you crazy-asshole? What, what are you,
0: a freak? <laughs> you know? And he's all sweating, and then he kicks down the other door, Cody pops out.
1: Cody throws his suitcase, like, he's Oh, he doesn't throw it in yeah. his face. He fucking throws it, um, he just grabs him, pins him against the wall, and he's arresting him, and before we know it, another like one of the cops from obviously airport security has yeah. come through the door, and he's like, "Freeze, asshole!" And he just, just has to turn around,
0: rambling for his little s- secret service ID. Well, again, he's got- so
1: not only he's like, he's like, "Oh shit!" And then he throws his credentials. The guy's got the guy's got his gun pointed at him. John Pankow, like v- Vukovic, comes through the same door with his gun drawn on the cop who has just drawn his gun on uh, Chance, and then there's another guy behind them.
0: That guy, I need. He- if there was an award for just like one-liners, this guy would get an award because yeah. he pops up. You got three guns in a row.
1: Here's my credentials. Here's my credentials. Here's my credentials.
0: This guy comes in and goes, "Uh, I just came in to take a leak," <laughs> and then he leaves. And he leaves. Yeah, I love By that. the way,
1: I I mean, I liked I liked I liked that little that little sequence because it's yeah adds a little bit of oh, comedy it's so funny. To it. yeah adds a little bit of comedy to the situation
0: oh yeah and then there's this bit where we get to meet bianca who's Rigmaster's lover at that avant-garde abstract expressionist dance kabuki show
1: yeah this bit
0: deborah fewer
1: yeah this bit's really cool
0: did you know that deborah Fuer was married to mickey rourke
1: no, but I do know. Holy she shit. was married
0: to Mickey Rourke when this movie was being filmed for like Fuck. uh, eight years they were together.
1: Huh. Okay. Yeah. Obviously. I what that was like. I don't know. I mean, Ricky Rourke in the 80s, I mean, he's a bit of a heartthrob. You know, you see him in nine and a half weeks. You see him in uh, Angel Heart. Like, I mean, he looks, he looks pretty good in those movies.
0: I don't know. In Angel Heart, he was a little bit too wet. Kind of gross.
1: Everyone's real wet in Angel Heart.
0: Everyone's real wet in the 80s. I don't know
1: why. Everyone's well. That's like everyone's really wet. Everyone, everything's very smoky. Every location's smoky, covered in as smoke. well. Or it's, it's so like wet. drenched in magic hour light. It's <laughs> again, it's the greatest movie decade of of any time ever. It's a
0: little backstage moments. It's a little
1: backstage moments. This is a backstage we get very familiar with. There's quite a few scenes in this backstage area. But one of the performers comes through, and you're seeing the character from the back. Yes you're not 100% sure if they're male or female. Mm-hmm. And Masters just sees this person and just immediately kisses them.
0: Yeah, really um, hot and heavy.
1: Yeah, very hot and heavy. And it's just kind of like there's a mystery to this individual. Again, like so much is that there's a mystery to, to Masters and his sexuality and just how he is as a person, which again, it contrasts super heavily to the kind of grunting masculinity of, say, like Chance, for example. Oh, of course. Where it's very much just like, well, I'm into I'm into women and this is what I do and I'm going to punch my hand through a brick wall. I'm
0: kicking this door in. Get out of my way. Because
1: the beautiful thing about, about Willem Dafoe and what he does with masters in this movie and certainly the level of direction that Friedkin gives him, and he says it in the commentary is that he just goes in there, uses the term zen, and it's just about like taking out all of the emotion from this character, keeping him calm, and keeping him very situated. Yes. And I feel like he just does... There's very few little bits of, of emotion coming from this guy unless he's really pushed into a corner.
0: Yeah, there's not a lot of highs, not a lot of lows. He's very very in the middle, very mellow, very chill.
1: Yeah, he's very leveled in that he's like he stays at the same plateau like yes. the entire movie for the most part.
0: It's like a way to keep himself safe. Pretty
1: much, yeah. Pretty much. I mean, I just think I just think like these, these little things. And I mean, the, the performer who he kisses, we soon realize is Deborah Fuhrer. She takes off a wig. Yeah, it's just nice. It's just a little bit of ambiguity there.
0: And also right after that, you get to see a little bit of his voyeurism because that's kind of part of his, his deal. You know, he's sitting down. He starts undressing Deborah Fuhrer in that backstage room and he just starts getting on her boobs you know, it, yeah, he
1: starts like making out with her, quite heavy, like heavy petting and stuff going on.
0: Yeah, he's getting down in there, yeah. and then you kind of uh, you have Deborah Fuhrer turn around. Sorry, Bianca, and she sees
1: Daphne I, from uh, Frasier.
0: Yeah, Daphne from <laughs> Frasier, and I don't know what her name is, and I'm so sorry. No. But uh, I look, yeah, she's also in the show, and she's taking off her makeup, and I'm like, oh, Daphne from Frasier, and yeah, she's just don't... watching them, like.
1: But again, she's like, she's still very important to the.
0: Oh yeah, to the outcome
1: of the story as well because she turns up quite a few times. Um, Jane,
0: is it Jane leaves?
1: So yeah, Jane leaves. But yeah, that's part of that's part of Masters sexual makeup, basically. You know, this is his this is his quirk. Yeah, you feel like you feel like a real amount of depth has gone into the the making of these characters. probably yeah. probably not from the side of Friedkin because he's very much a kind of run-and-gun, get-it-done sort of filmmaker.
0: Well, I don't know, he wrote um, it. He wrote it from the book, you know. Yeah, I screenplay. mean, I would say
1: that, but I think he's, from from our understanding of how he how spoke on the commentary and things like that, he cast people who could get lost in the roles a bit. Yes. And he has stated, like, on, on a few occasions that he doesn't like providing tons of backstory to his characters either, which is, again, this emphasis of a living-in-the-moment
0: Yeah, of course. I was listening to an interview with William Friedkin, and he was talking about how he had worked with Nick Nolte on a movie. I can't remember which one it was right now. But I guess Nick Nolte had written like a 300-page dossier on his character. And I think it's something that he does quite frequently. Mm. And he, he like gave it to Friedkin, and he was like, Hey, man, would you read this over and just see if I've really got the character right? Friedkin looked at it, laughed throws it in the garbage and he says to him the next day, he's like, hey man, did you read my, my dossier on like my character? Like, What do you think about it? And Freakin's like, it's perfect. Go for it. <laughs> stake out.
1: Yeah. Show me I your
0: secret service. Stake out. So
1: the stake out goes horribly wrong. A lot of shit seems to happen. Uh, Masters is able to murder Waxman. And I love the way that he murders him. He uh, he shoots Waxman in the dick.
0: Yeah, he does.
1: And then... He shoots uh,
0: him right... In the penis.
1: Yeah. And then he he he, he, uh, he gives a little quip about his terrible taste in art.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: then murders Waxman.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> oh, much. yeah.
0: Well, they have to run in and try to gather anything they can, any bit of evidence, or see if they can get any information. Um, yeah. Which is when you see Chance breaking another rule as he typically does.
1: So this is the first part where Vukovic gets a very uh, clear idea as to as to Chance's motivations and his his kind of working practices. So yeah, this is when we this is when we we see uh, Chance's true his kind of true nature and that he steals steals evidence from the office.
0: Yeah, from Waxman's office. He yeah. he takes um It's like a little diary, like a book of code.
1: little book of code. crypt code. It's got names and dates and stuff and amounts and things. Symbols. And I guess, like, the very nature of, like, this scene and, like, what they're trying to do is that, obviously, Vukovic is one of law and he's one of order. And also, Chance is like, well, the rules need to be broken in order for this. You can't trust everybody, you know so he's like we're taking the law into our own hands so we can effectively like guarantee this that masters is arrested at the end of this so there's these little highlights these little things about the systemic nature of their job and to the lengths at which they are going is not just as police officers or members of the secret service but where they're going to in terms of how they are as people you know they're kind of very much like i said before on a destiny with self-destruction but it's like how it warps them as individuals as the story progresses
0: well chance is always going to have an excuse mm-hmm. He is never ever going to be wrong no even when things go wrong he's going to spin it to where it went exactly the way he wanted it to yeah and that's just how he is like he can do no wrong everything he does is for the greater good in his head
1: yes i mean for him there's always someone else to blame
0: and I, I kind of <laughs> yeah. feel
1: like uh, this leads us on quite comfortably to the character of Ruth. Yes. Who is his informer.
0: Yes, yeah, so she gives him hot takes and hot tips on criminal activities in the area. Of
1: the crime world, yeah. So Chance has Ruth under his thumb, pretty much. This is a, this is a great insight to kind of how he is. And how he does his job and how he is as a person and how it seems to have kind of warped him somewhat. Where he has this poor girl who's a criminal or a past criminal who still has her connections to the criminal underworld. And he threatens her no less than every single time they ever have a conversation. Yeah,
0: he really does. It's
1: like, I'll revoke your parole. You won't get to see your child. Yeah. You know? But I guess like it's this level of exploitation that like this level to which he will go to make sure that he catches the like he I mean he guess he maintains like his arrest rate stuff like that because he's like one of the top officers in the in the department Oh you know? okay. according to his chief mm. so you know he's he's keeping the numbers but again like all these motivations they're kind of slightly blurred like from what the vocation actually is to, like, his own personal motivations as well. Yeah. Very, just kind of very interesting, kind of very deep, deep moments. But his relationship with Ruth is one of the most interesting and pertains to, like, the final moral of the story as well.
0: So Chance leaves his secret service office and we don't really know where he's going, but we know that he'll end up at his full frontal scene <laughs> soon enough.
1: Yes, this is us leading, <laughs> leading in towards the dick scene. He's
0: driving us to his penis. Mm-hmm. Okay, so he pulls up to this gate. We don't know where he is. Uh, walks up to a door in a building that we haven't seen before. It's not his, you know, fancy beach house. No. But he has a key.
1: He has a key, he has access to this house.
0: He has a key, so, um, you know, like, is it his house? I'm not sure. When he walks in, he immediately goes to the fridge and pulls out his favourite beer.
1: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We hear, while he's in the kitchen, we hear Ruth's voice. Okay. Being like, who's there? Or, obviously, I think she knows, she realises that that Chance is there. Then he walks into the bedroom, changes the radio. Yeah, because by the time he enters the bedroom... The radio is already on.
0: He walks into the bedroom and there's a woman in bed and you very quickly realize that it's Ruth. Yes. His informant that we were mm-hmm. talking about.
1: Yeah. It feels like this location's been picked for a very specific reason because pretty much when he enters the house to them, when he gets into the bedroom, it's all shot pretty much as a one-er and every single frame in this, at the angle that they've picked it at, it looks absolutely gorgeous.
0: Yeah. Just it's got those really, really nice well. big windows and stuff.
1: Really big windows, you see a lot of depth into this into this apartment, and then obviously when we get to what becomes the sex scene, it's just this lovely long shot looking down the hallway. So he's and-
0: just kind of sitting there, um, and he starts to undress, and they're just having, kind of having a little chit-chat back and forth. And I don't remember exactly what they were saying, but I remember he takes his T-shirt that he had just taken off and just mm-hmm. kind of throws it in her face. So like, not, not hard. No. Just like a little toss. Mm-hmm. Just a playful little, here's my sweaty shirt I've been hanging out in all day and all night.
1: Yes. Stank. Um, and then she puts, it, she puts it on.
0: Yeah, she puts his shirt on. Yeah,
1: she's totally naked. Yes. But they're kind of... Like, you can feel it kind of burning. Like, there's a desire there.
0: Yeah, it's a definite contrast to, like, the last time we saw them chatting with each other in that little cafe Mm -hmm. to how they are now. It's a little bit playful, a little, like, coy, a little flirty, sexy kind Mm -hmm. of chit-chat. Because you don't know really... How long this has been going on? What their relationship has really been like? I mean, it's it's no. kind of hard to tell at this point because you've seen this is the second time you've seen them together, but you assume, you know. I mean, I was assuming at least at this point that it's a decent type of relationship in a way. Like I,
1: I mean, on the surface, it looks like a romantic,
0: yeah, absolutely. Relationship he has that they have with each
1: other. She keeps his favorite
0: beer in the fridge. He knows where all the stuff is. Mm-hmm. You know, he knows where to find her. You know, and she he, puts on yeah. his. Stinky shirt. hmm You know, they they have a relationship.
1: I mean it it I don't like to say that, but I mean it's it seems like she's she's almost at a state of readiness for for him to almost yeah. be when he comes over. My. You know what I mean? But certainly by the time we get to this scene and we've already had an interaction with them already in the cafe, yes. where she's dropping like little hints like she has a child and there's there's the sense that like she's an ex criminal and certainly has her under the thumb because he flat out just fucking threatens her
0: mm-hmm. to send
1: her back to jail. Um there's a sense that like he can't separate his personal life from his work life.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah everything so, kind of ties in together like his friends friends are his work friends and his mm-hmm. colleagues yeah. and the yeah i mean his informant is also his lover
1: cuz i don't want to flat out say that i think chance is like an asshole but he behaves like one
0: i think he's pretty terrible
1: yeah like he's really bad like he seems like be a like, like a really bad anti hero yeah but there are parts like as this scene continues, she puts on his black shirt, like his oversized shirt, because she's like tiny. Yeah. Um, he's slowly undressing. He's taking off his belt buckle, and he's,
0: then he's given that Peterson stare.
1: They are staring at each other. I
0: mean, he's given her that hot, mm-hmm. real deep into her eyes type of look. I mean, yeah. that's if she wasn't wearing pants. Those pants would have fell right
1: off. It is burning, like it's fiery, the music's playing, and it's all kinda like it's very sultry and it's seductive and it's all like leading up to obviously what we're what we're about to see. And it's deathly quiet. It's just the sounds of them. Sound of the music on the radio playing quite faintly, and it's just the undressing.
0: Yeah, he's so doing. he's got his belt off. Mm-hmm. He'd already taken off his gun holster, places it yeah. on the table. He gets his jeans off. I think he was wearing jeans. He's
1: wearing jeans and a belt, yeah.
0: And she stands up.
1: So basically, the shot orders going back and forth into mids where they're kind of undressing and stuff. Then we're back into the wide shot. And this wide shot sees her. Get up from the bed. Oh yeah,
0: cuz it's her back is facing the camera. Her back is and facing she gets the camera. up out of the bed wearing his shirt.
1: Wearing his shirt.
0: And then they go into a they start kissing and stuff. Sexy embrace.
1: Yeah, so he is he is naked. You oh, can yeah. tell he is completely naked by the time she gets
0: up. 100%. Yeah. Then it's like he undresses. She puts his shirt on as mm. she stands up. Mm-hmm. Then he undresses her.
1: So, basically, he just pulls the shirt that he threw at her while... And, and she puts it on. He pulls it over the top of her shoulders. Yeah,
0: just down. Like, the shirt is so big that yeah. the opening of the collar fits over her shoulders and down. Yeah. Like, this, to the floor.
1: Yeah, this woman is incredibly slight. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, then yeah, pulls that pulls that down. They start kissing... He, like, grabs her ass, like, lifts up the shirt a little bit so you can see her ass.
0: Oh, yeah, before she takes the shirt before off. Before he
1: takes the shirt off completely. Um,
0: then there's that thing when she finally gets the shirt all the way to the ground. Mm-hmm. He, like,
1: lifts like her lifts up. her up. Mm.
0: She wraps her legs around his hips. Mm-hmm. And then penis.
1: Yeah, we see his dick.
0: You see his penis. You mm-hmm. see it all. You see yeah. the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Not very bright, like the room isn't brightly lit because it's so, still dawn. And this yeah, the
1: room's lit and colored a specific way. And yeah. he's completely backlit. Yes, because he's up. He's against the windows.
0: What I really like about this is when you hear William Peterson uh, talk about how they blocked the scene. Apparently, Friedkin said, "You know, just." do what feels right to you. He's like, I'm going to put the camera right here. You guys just do it. Surprise me. Surprise me. That's exactly what he said. He said that yeah. was like the best bit of advice he had ever heard. Like, just tell the actors surprise me. Yeah. And so I guess they had talked about it together and they came up with what to do and that's what they came up with. Yeah. And they just, and that's how we shot it. And that's how they did it.
1: Cause that's the thing. Like when it gets to this point where he, you know, she comes off the bed, they're together All the cuttings already kind of happened. It's all kind of build up to this one moment. And this one moment happens in this one wide shot. Yeah. All of the motions, all of the things that we are describing to you from the reveal and stuff like that is all this one shot.
0: And never, yeah, the camera never moves. And
1: that's all it needs to be. Never cuts. Yeah, that's all it needed to be. Because, I mean, he picks her up. We see his dick. And it's apparent. We can see it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Very clearly. And then just takes her to the bed. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, There was another interview that I heard uh, with Friedkin and Peterson and they were talking about this scene and like Friedkin's just making a joke about, you know, how he had told them you can block it however you want and and just do what feels right to you. And um, he was like, you know. I don't know what happened, I don't know if you guys really had sex, I don't know what you got up to, oh, and I'm wow. like, that's weird. Yeah, that's strange. That's such a weird thing to say, and it was like an huh. audience full of people, and everyone's laughing, and Peterson's just gonna stand there awkwardly, it was probably like, I didn't have sex with her. Yeah, I'm <laughs> an actor. And we're just <laughs> rehearsing, William. Wow, that's weird. It was really weird.
1: Yeah, that's well, any nice. goes thing, it goes on the list of weird things William Friedkin has yeah. said.
0: Um, I remember when we watched this movie for the first time. I uh this is me leading into the second time that Instagram had warned me and uh for putting inappropriate content on my on my oh, stories. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. I just thought it was funny. It's like he, you know, he lifts her up, you see his dick, and I just took a little screen grab with my phone, just took a little snapshot and I put it on my stories and I don't know how many people watch my stories on Instagram. You know,
1: mm. I don't
0: know who's looking at these things. My account's private, mm. but within minutes, I got flagged. My post was taken down. And I, I did mention this is the second time because I've done this before. I'm a repeat offender. Yeah. But I don't, you know. Call the cops. Call the cops. She's a yeah. repeat offender. Yeah. She's a dick offender. Yeah. I never found out. I never found out who, who tattled on me. Unless it's just an Instagram algorithm, I'll I'll never really know.
1: Fucking grass. So he carries her to the bed, and then the scene just ends.
0: Quick cut. Mm
1: -hmm. It's almost
0: like night to day. You know, dawn has finally broke. Pretty much it's like
1: middle of the morning. Buns no Um, longer out. Nope. Buns, everything's closed up.
0: Everything's tucked away. Yeah. So what
1: it cuts to is effectively almost the same shot just a little bit lower so you know exactly in terms of the geography of where they are you know exactly where they same are same hallway same hallway well, it's also
0: such a weird a weird thing because you go from that tenderness and that flirtation the the stares the looks the connection that they have together and then when you cut to later after they have sex i don't think he looks at her once i don't think he looks at her in the eyes or in the face one time she's sitting on the bed getting dressed he's sitting on the toilet he's not having a poo or anything he's just like drinking coffee he's like reading the paper and he's just she's kind of chatting to him telling him bits of information Mm -hmm. asking when she's going to get paid stuff like that
1: yeah she's asking for compensation and his
0: oh yeah if I
1: even looking at her without even technically addressing her He goes, Uncle Sam, don't give a shit about your expenses. You want bread, you fuck a baker.
0: You want bread, fuck a baker. Yeah. Doesn't even look at her. Doesn't even look at her. No. And she's just, I don't know, it's just so, uh, I mean, he's constantly demeaning.
1: Mm Mm-hmm.
0: He's always trying to put her down. Yeah. Um oh yeah. yeah well that that's what he says to her right before he leaves her apartment that morning after they have sex, yeah, because she you know asks him like what'll happen if I stop giving you information?" Mm-hmm. He looks at her dead in the face, probably the first time he looked at her that whole morning, yeah, and just says, "I'll revoke your parole mm-hmm. and she says, "Would you really do that? I don't think he says a thing. he just walks out the door
1: but i like I like the fact that this scene. As much as it's not technically a sex scene. No. We are exposed to it's a lot a power more. power scene. Yeah. I mean, we're ex- we are exposed to a lot more than you would probably get in your standard sex scene. There's not any kind of... Penis. Heaving and... <laughs> I mean, yeah. You know, it's kind of... You know, we don't, we don't really... We don't cover any of that. But I guess, like, what you get from this, I mean, it's totally justifiable. Totally has reason for being there. Totally has... Uh, a reason within the the essence of the story, the character dynamic, how they're portrayed in being in the film. Yeah. And that's something I'd really quite like about it, you know, is that you can read into it a lot, a lot further than just looking at it from face value. I guess this is where we would talk about, to wait, the ending.
0: Oh, yeah, well, I mean, it's about to go wrong. Chase has the poker chip in Mm -hmm. Master's mouth, and then things just start going wrong. There's shots going off. The henchman comes in and eventually shoots Chance in the face.
1: Dead in the face. Blows his head off. Yeah, dead in the face. Essentially.
0: So what we're left with is Master's getting away, and Vukovic is, is on his own.
1: So Vukovic has no choice. He has to go after Masters and. Oh, would you.
0: What? He has to exact revenge? Do you say that he has a revenge story now?
1: It looks like. Oh my gosh. Well, the thing is. Does is it like, ever end? Well, the thing is, Chance is, is killed and the revenge, the vengeance, is then enacted into Vukovic. Yes, yeah, so so it's he, like a
0: transference of vengeance. It's a transference of vengeance.
1: Of vengeance. Pretty much
0: the sequel to to live and die in L. A. Yeah. Transference of Vengeance. Just the course of the film,
1: like Vukovic goes to all these different places without chance there and talks to all these different people, doing actual
0: to. police work.
1: Yeah, because he talks to Grimes, the lawyer. He goes to the warehouse where we find that's the that's the other counterfeiting warehouse oh, as yeah. well, because it has the Japanese character on the shutter. And then he goes there in the finale, and the place is ablaze.
0: Because Masters likes to set stuff on fire Masters when he doesn't likes use, to use set it anymore.
1: Because that's the thing. Like, There's obviously an allegory between what Masters does at the beginning of the movie where he starts to you know, burn his own artwork to where he starts burning the all the equipment and the counterfeiting equipment that he's been yes. using. So certainly like, you can see the comparison between what he judges to be his art and how he's how he's willing to, to 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 burn it all right um but effectively like they they have a fight and things and then what happens is masters ends up getting set on fire oh yeah yeah and shot yes yeah. tons of times yeah
0: until there's no more bullets he click is, click yeah. click
1: he is fucking dead yeah
0: oh yeah there's no coming back dead. from that
1: Yeah, he's not coming back But it's just a kind of very, uh, I guess it's kind of very poignant. It's all kind of been leading up towards that point. So, yeah, I quite like that final sequence.
0: As this is a transference of vengeance for Vukovic, and after he has vanquished our enemy in Masters, Mm -hmm. we see him pull up to Ruth's house, just as Chance used to do, knock on her door, and... I mean, to make a long story short, he essentially takes up the mantle that Chance had left and um, almost threatened. No, he does kind of threaten her into being his informant when she was packing up to leave the city. That's why
1: you kind of feel like what's happening within the story is systematic within the department so that if Chance has died, it's not technically because of Who chance was as a person that he's doing these things is because it's what's expected of him and now someone has to take up that that responsibility and that role so there's no technically there's no escape for any of these people you know that's why again like if I feel like it's called to live and die in LA it's like you live there you're gonna die there yeah you know there is no escape Like, this is the life you lead. And Masters, I kind of feel like he's one of many
0: different heads. Do you remember that point where Chance and Vukovic are, are, they're like casing this joint and they see these two perps, like they're probably exchanging the counterfeit money and then they just start running. And so yeah. Chance and Vukovic are just chasing these guys. And Chance is really gaining on this guy. He Chance yells, "Why are you running?" And the guy just like kind of looks around, he's still running. He oh, it was Vukovic. I thought it was Chance. Are you sure?
1: No, oh, it's Vukovic.
0: Okay. Well, one of them. Yeah. However, <laughs> <laughs> one of them's chasing the other one
1: swap in swap out
0: <laughs> one's a secret service guy the other secret service guy it's fine yeah. they're chasing down this guy he says why are you running man and he goes because you're chasing me man hilarious i don't care who said it <laughs> whatever
1: yeah i like to think there's that shot of william peterson like looking out from his balcony onto the water see the beach and stuff like that that's the reason why michael man cast him in Manhunter because he does that a lot in that movie
0: just like looks off into the distance
1: just looks off into water (laughs) put some water in
0: front of that man
1: yeah pretty much
0: he needs to reminisce
1: he needs to ruminate (laughs) against the backdrop of some waves
0: that's the only way he can do it I mean if there's no waves in front of him no rumination possible
1: no probably not
0: kind of look off into that sweet horizon
1: Mm mm-hmm 10000 yards stare just looking at water.
0: <laughs> I mean, that's, that's probably why the water's so wet. <laughs> Sorry. Because he's so sexy. <laughs>
1: Knocking it out of the park as usual. <laughs> oh, dear.
0: There's this point where chance and Vukovic finally get to meet masters and i think they go into the actual gym and are yeah. pumping they're all pumping together I love,
1: yeah i love this sequence
0: oh my gosh so they're pumping and then you see behind them pumping and i didn't notice this i think until like the third time we watched this movie yeah and like <laughs> there's this woman in this kind of blue like She's like, you know, the, in those book, cool yeah. in those in those cool 80s workout outfits. Yes. You know, where they had a the really high cut. It's almost like a swimsuit. 100 percent yeah. And you uh and she's wearing one of those like body suits, mm-hmm. electric blue. Mm-hmm. I think she's got on a headband, mm-hmm. and she's pumping away with her weights. She has the biggest jugs. She's a tiny little body and yeah. big, big jugs. They're like basketballs.
1: Yeah, she's got massive boobies. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And it's like they're you know, well, once you see her, you can't look away.
0: No, and I just completely forgot yeah. what these guys are talking about like that, at the like, gym because I'm looking at these boobies back yeah, here.
1: Like William Peterson, like they're all wearing like so very small small things, and they're all doing these kind of like because Willem Defoe's like wiping down the mat. Well, he
0: was working on his his buys. I'm like
1: they're all seem to be got using the Peterson same. Peterson working on
0: his tries.
1: Yeah, they're still they seem to be working on the same piece of equipment.
0: I mean, that happens at the gym. You can yeah. have, like, one machine that does a bunch of stuff.
1: Know, I'm very... I'm not used to the gym life yet. I've only just started going to the gym. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> certainly, all the nakedness does happen. That is true. 100%. That happens all the time.
0: Yeah, I'm not used yeah. to... I don't go into the men's locker room. No. It's, I don't I it's, don't want to do that.
1: It's eye-opening. But, oh. uh, yeah. Do you want to hear something that's funny? Yes. Bob Weiner, right?
0: Yes. The
1: casting director. Of course. He holds up all the actors. In, a, in an apartment. Like a boarding house.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah.
1: And they all called it Camp Wiener.
0: Camp Wiener? <laughs> Please tell me they made t-shirts.
1: I think they did, yeah. They did, of course. They did, yeah. Do you think
0: we can make one? Probably. I want a Camp Wiener shirt. Probably. That's
1: awesome. They go to the printers and they're like, you know this is corny as fuck, right? And we're like, yeah. Yeah. Of course we do. do- Print it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So Ryan, I think I know the answer to this, but for anyone that hasn't watched this film, would you recommend that they watch this film?
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I think not only is it a fantastic example of, of, a, of a good, decent cop thriller, I feel like there's so much depth within the film itself, within the character dynamics, that it's just overall taking it away from the type of film that it is, it is just an interesting film from start to finish oozing with style uh fast paced it's thrilling it's actually emotional and it has it has an in- it has an interesting way in which it 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 shows it shows it all off so yeah 100% it would be I would recommend
0: great good i mean i'm obviously on the same page i love this movie yeah i think it's fun I think everyone in it is amazing. Everyone's doing 110%, and I love it every single time I watch it. I'm never not going to want to watch this movie. Mm -hmm. Friedkin is amazing. Um, Yeah, Peterson was super fun to watch. I'm really glad that he got this role so that we could see him in more things later on. Yeah. And I'm glad he's naked in it. And also the fact that this is, again, one of those casual nudity scenes which as you know are my favorite kinds it's not forced it's natural and especially because these two actors were able to figure out how they wanted to do this scene yeah they were able to plan it out themselves they talked about it they planned it and it's not like Friedkin was going like Peterson you gotta take your dick out Mm -hmm. you know it never happened it was just natural it made sense for them it made sense for their for their characters and they did it. There was no fuss about it. It was normal. It was casual. And it worked so, so beautifully yeah. in that scene. It's a beautiful shot. It's a beautiful scene. Um, little chef's kiss. I love it. I absolutely yeah. love it. Um, I will do my visibility and context rating for you. I'm definitely going to give this a four out of five for visibility and context Great context. Visibility is very good, although it's a little bit dark, but I will forgive that. Not a problem. Um, And this is a five star film. Hands freaking down. Five star film. Love it.
1: Yeah. So I guess if I was going to go into context, um, I think the fact that it, it has a reason to be there and there's much deeper reason for it being there. I mean, it has to be either a 4 or a 5 for me, Okay. personally. Yes. In terms of visibility, it is slightly dark. So, I mean, that has to maybe be dropped down a point to maybe like a 3.
0: Okay, okay. But
1: that's not to say that you don't see it and it's not there. Yeah. But I think most importantly is that this scene has every right to be there because it is giving us information. There is not a wasted minute in this film. No. Whatsoever. No. And it's only just under two hours in length. So what they're able to get out of it, I feel like, is is absolutely perfect. And yeah, I mean, you already know what I feel about this film. It's a five-star movie. <laughs> it's one of my favorite films of all time. So I was very happy and pleased that we, we got, to, got to cover this one and cover it with a level of depth that I felt like it deserved.
0: Well, thank you all so much for being here with us to talk about To Live and Die in L.A., And make sure to find us on Instagram. You can find us on our website at onthebeat.com. We'll have our news there, new episodes. If you have questions, make sure to send us a message. And and thank you so much. Um, Coming at you from Camp Wiener, I have been Laura. I've been Ryan. And this has been On The Beat. Thank you so much, and uh, we'll see you next time. Catch you. Bye.
1: Can't wait. <laughs> I can hardly wait.
0: I can hardly wait.
1: Yeah, well, they obviously don't know you, do they? Well, that's kind of just how that, how that is. Oh. What happened there? I don't know. Do you want to have a wee look? Something just hit okay. our window. <laughs> well,
0: that's what happens when you record during a hurricane, apparently.
1: Yeah. Yeah, we are. We're uh unfortunately we've we've had to we've had to postpone uh the recording of this episode. Uh almost two days because we had a we had a blackout the other night. Like five five hours or something, we were out without power. Yes. Um And obviously coming in today, we're like, oh, Elsa's on the horizon and nothing's not really any kind of anything's really kind of happened with it so far. So we've been quite we've been quite fortunate in that regard. Um,
0: All is well, by the way. Yeah, yeah, no no perps, no crims out there. Yeah, we're safe. No tree branches. Yeah, we're safe. (laughs) There's
1: no no elusive tree branches that anyone's going to have to arrest anytime soon.